This June, me and my team headed back to New Hampshire to visit Porkfest, an annual festival for libertarians, free staters, and pretty much anyone who wants to live their life free on their own terms. It's an amazing event filled with all sorts of interesting people. This is one of the conversations I had there. Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. David, good to meet you. Nice to meet you. So this is the 49th anniversary, according to my math, of your book, The Machinery of Freedom, which is a, an amazing number to think about. And um, as, as far as I remember, you were kind of the OG first guy to lay out the principles of anarcho-capitalism, at least in my world. And, and maybe, maybe Murray beat you to it, Murray Rothbard, I don't know. That is, I, he almost certainly published earlier than I did, and I am not sure to what extent he published a explanation of how such a system would work. Yeah. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on Rothbard's writing. I think there are some interesting differences between our views of the subject, but I don't know enough about yeah. what he wrote. So what's the, um, how did you get to the point where you wanted to lay out a, a systematic sure. explanation of it, anarcho-capitalism? My, my, at one point, say, when I graduated, when, when I went to college, my political view was roughly classical liberal. That is to say, I thought that you wanted to use the market to handle almost all issues, but that it had to function within a framework of laws and law enforcement provided from outside the market, uh, and therefore you needed some amount of government. And I wasn't entirely happy with that position. In particular, I have never figured out how the fact that the government makes a law makes it right or wrong. Uh, but nonetheless, that seemed to me the situation. And I read a science fiction novel by Robert Heinlein called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And it included a description of a society which had, in effect, law and law enforcement, but had no government. And it seemed to me it was an internally consistent description. It was not anything very much like my society. It was a society that grew up around a penal colony on the moon. Quite a good story as it happens. Uh, but I thought that I had sort of at the back of my mind a proof that the legal system had to be exogenous, had to come from outside the system. This was an example of one where it didn't, and a theorem is defeated by a single counterexample. So that meant that it was at least possible that one could have a functioning society in which the legal system was itself internal to the market. So I started thinking about what that would be like, and that's what ended up with Machinery of Freedom. Specifically, that's what ended up with part three of Machinery of Freedom, which is the part that discusses that. Yeah. And the basic system I came up with was one in which each individual is the customer of a private firm that sells the service of protecting his rights and settling his disputes. And the immediate problem that people raise is, what if I think that you've committed a crime against me, you deny it, I'm a customer of one rights enforcement agency, you're a customer of another, won't that end up with their having to fight each other? And the answer to that is that these are profit-making firms, warfare is very expensive, Furthermore, if the way you settle your disputes is about who can win a, a, a fight, there is no good way of predicting that you will actually enforce people's rights. Some of the time, you, the loser is going to be the wrong guy. It makes a great deal more sense from the standpoint of the firms to arrange for arbitration. So each pair of firms that might get into conflict, I predict, agree on a private court whose verdicts they will accept. 
And the next question you might ask is, since in this system there is no government, what enforces that agreement? And the answer is what enforces that agreement is the fact that they are repeat players, that each firm knows that if it refuses to abide by the agreement when its customer loses, the other firm won't abide when, when its customer loses and you're back to shooting at each other. And that's not a very satisfactory solution. So that was the basic guts of the system. And then the next question that arises is where do the laws that are being enforced come from? And the answer in my system is they also are produced on the market because the laws are those legal rules that arbitration agencies find their customers want. So the arbitration agency uh, wants to design legal rules such that rights enforcement agencies will choose to buy its services. The rights enforcement agencies want to buy legal rules such that their customers will want to buy their services. So you have a market production of law. And one of the points that I like to make in arguing with people who are a little bit less extreme than I am, who want a government system, is we both agree that the government is very bad at making cars. And if the government makes cars, they're going to be expensive and not work very well. We agree that the government is bad at producing food. And if the government is in charge of producing food, then there may well be famines and it will almost certainly be low quality and high cost. Producing laws is not a trivial project. If you have never thought about it, it's tempting to say, well, it's obvious the rule is you can't coerce people. But when you, th anybody who's actually been to law school, you realize that there are a whole bunch of very complicated issues as to what rights people have legally. When you own a piece of land, what can you or can you not forbid other people to do with regard to that land? Uh, that there are, after all, rights that are relevant to two adjacent pieces of land. Do I have a right to play music very loud on my land at one in the morning when you want to sleep and so forth? So it turns out to be a very complicated problem. And if governments are not competent to produce uh, food or cars, they probably aren't competent to produce laws either. Uh, and therefore, my argument is that a system in which the laws are themselves produced on the market, it's not identical to an ordinary market because uh, as an individual customer, it's not like I can choose exactly what law I'll have because it's got to be a law that other customers are willing to agree to abide by. But it comes much closer to that than our kind of system. And whereas in our system, in theory, the politicians want to make laws that the people want so that they'll vote for them, but the individual voter first has no incentive to know which politician is doing a good job because his vote has a, maybe one chance in 100,000 or one chance in a million of changing the outcome of the election. And furthermore, he has no very good way of finding out what laws are good or bad because he has no way of comparing them. So that if you think about the question whether the uh, Trump administration uh, of 2016 to 2020 was better or worse than the Hillary administration would have been. We've got no way of finding that out. We can't compare them. Uh, you can compare that with the Biden administration, but it faced a different set of problems. Whereas in the system I'm describing, you can say, well, my f cousin over there has a customer of rights enforcement agency X, and they seem to be doing a good job. Uh, my friend over there is agency Y. They don't think they did a very good job. Maybe I should go with X. So you've got something at least closer to a ordinary competitive market providing the services that we associate with police and courts. And that's the guts of it. And I spend a good deal of time 
both in the first edition and in the third edition of Machinery, which I added about 100 pages to, discussing the problems with that system. It's certainly not a perfect system. There are no perfect systems. And I discuss what I refer to as market failure on the market for law. What are the cases where the law it produces will not be the optimal law for various reasons? What are the problems the society will have in maintaining itself, in defending itself, and so forth? So I'm certainly not claiming that I can prove that under all possible circumstances this can work. Uh, but I think I can show that under a substantial range of circumstances it would work, and that if it worked, it one has reasons to think that it is superior to uh, alternative ways of providing that set of services. So that's the guts of the idea. It, it seems like um, even if you have a perfect classical liberal society and a constitutionally constrained government, you, you still run into a couple core things that, that libertarians believe. One is uh, sort of Lord Acton, James Buchanan, incentive abuse of power problems. And, and you certainly see that with the enforcement of laws. Hmm. Um, but the other problem, which I always thought was more fundamental, is, is kind of Hayek's problem. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking about what Hayek might say of these arguments because there's a, there's a knowledge problem. Like, how, how could you possibly know what good law is unless you let the process work it out and you hmm. let people do that? He talked about it a little bit differently than you would, but, you know, when he talks about the... the the evolution of laws and and the the way that the government corrupts those laws um, it it feels like that he's he's describing in different terms that competitive mm -hmm. process yeah that is the governments do not have the political system is not incentive compatible to use the economic jargon that is to say people do not have an incentive to act in the way they should act in order for the system to work yeah and the obvious example is rational ignorance of voters that yeah. the, in order for the system to work the way sort of elementary school textbooks w would describe it you require voters to know who they should vote for which requires that they know what each politician has done which is not trivial because if you say well he voted against such and such a law and he can say well yes but i was in favor of the objective of the law i just wanted to shoot down that version so we could get another and better version and you'd have to pay a lot of attention to figure out whether he's lying or not and he also doesn't have an incentive to know what laws are going to be good or bad and therefore you have a system where democracy is a very weak way of constraining of constraining a the government and the individual government actors. I mentioned market failure before. And basically, I think of market failure as situations where individual rationality does not produce group rationality. And typically that happens because the individual is not bearing the cost or not receiving the benefit of his actions that the way you want a decentralized system to work, the way the market normally works, is that each decision that I make, I pay its costs, receive the benefits, and therefore, if it's a net gain to me, it's a net gain for us. There are situations where that isn't true. Those are the sort of standard market failure. But the situations where it isn't true on the ordinary market are very much the exception, that normally you have to pay for your inputs. Once in a while, one of your inputs is your neighbor's downwind coughing from your smoke, and then you're going to make more than the optimal amount of smoke, so to speak. But in the political system, individual actors practically never 
bear the cost or receive the benefit of their of their actions which is why i like to say that market failure is a real problem but it is the exception on the private market and the rule on the political market yeah government failure is the rule and i'm thinking specifically of a very modern controversial example of of police in uvalde refusing to enter that school and so you have a literal monopoly on force you have a gun-free zone and the, the, the people that we have hired and contracted with, um, I shouldn't say it yep. that way because we didn't hire and contract them. Yep. We, they were foisted upon us. Um, they had no incentive yep. to do their jobs, yep. apparently. Yeah, a, a different and sort of slightly less extreme case is that until a few days ago, the legal rule was that if the police destroy your house in the process of going after a criminal, they owe you no, no, no compensation. And there has just been a case, I believe in Texas, if I'm not mistaken, which ruled the other way, where a police, uh, in the course of doing presumably legitimate things, wrecked somebody's house, and she sued, and they lost, uh, which is a very good precedent. But that means that it has been the case through, I guess, all previous, I don't know if all previous history, but at least all modern history, that the police did not have an incentive in deciding how to catch a criminal to avoid doing damage to the property of innocent people in the process. Yeah, this is, I mean, you could you could criticize um, uh, my friends on the left the same way, but when you talk to conservatives about certain things like law enforcement they or uh, national defense, they would have an almost uh, religious faith yeah. that it, in these particular instances, the government provision of services yeah. is efficient and necessary but if government fails at, at baking bread, imagine how catastrophic it is when it fails at protecting life and property. Yes. One of the things that I've found in a certain sense amusing about the political discussion over the police in the last year or two is that people on the left talk about defunding the police. As best I can tell, not a one of them realizes that in England in the 18th century there were not police. That there are, we have in fact models of systems not that far from ours under the Anglo-American legal system that we still have in which the essentially catching criminals was an entirely a private activity uh, where basically in that system uh, the victim of a crime was the person responsible for catching the criminal but he didn't have to do it himself he could hire somebody else they were professional thief takers uh, so it's quite an interesting system. I've got my most recent book is a book on legal systems very different from ours. And one of the long chapters is trying to make sense of the 18th century English criminal system. Uh, part of the puzzle is why you bother to catch somebody, given that unlike tort law, you're not going to be able to collect damages. And I have a couple of answers to that, to that question in that chapter. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So what are some other examples of uh, the private provision of law that have worked in history? Well, at present, a lot of commercial uh, legal activities in the form of private arbitration, the American Arbitration Association or other similar 
examples. Uh, an example that someone did an article quite a long time ago, which I think it's changed since then, uh, was the diamond industry in the U.S., where at one point the diamond industry in New York was almost entirely in the hands of Orthodox Jews, and they did not think they were religiously permitted to sue each other. So what happened instead was that if I, one of them thought somebody else had cheated him, uh, he would announce the fact in effect, ask for arbitration by one of the rabbis who everybody trusted, and if the other person refused arbitration or refused to go along with the arbitrated result, uh, that fact would become public knowledge and he'd be out of the diamond industry because this was a heavily trust-intensive industry where you have an envelope full of little things that you haven't inspected all of that you're told it's so many diamonds of such and such characteristics and it's worth $50,000 uh, and if people cheat you, you've got real problems. So that would be a, a fairly well-established modern case. Uh, but historically, uh, the, I guess the traditional Somali system was a stateless system uh, in which basically the law was more or less traditional, uh, but you had a sort of an ad hoc court called up in case of a dispute to decide what it was. Uh, the Lex Mercantoria, the merchant law of the Middle Ages, was a private uh, law, which I think was enforced mostly by reputation, like the, the diamond dealers. Uh, the more recently, I think the diamond industry was operating through a diamond dealers club doing the same thing, and I'm told that system eventually broke down. I'm not sure, sure exactly why, uh, but we've got lots of examples where you have, and I should say, one of the things I concluded from the most recent book I wrote was that when I invented anarcho-capitalism in Machinery of Freedom, I was in a certain sense reinventing the wheel. That is to say that I was describing in a modern high division labor of, of, of labor society what was a fairly common simpler system uh, in less developed societies so that the Somali system really has something sort of equivalent to rights enforcement agencies. Uh, the Icelandic system, which I wrote about a long time ago, there actually you have a legislature that is making the law, but the whole process of prosecution and enforcing verdicts is private. Uh, so we've this, the range of things that have really existed is much larger than most people imagine. Uh, your, your argument for, for anarchy is um, what you call consequentialist. That's correct. Ex explain what that means. Sure. The two different approaches that I see, not just for that, but for lots of other issues, are either saying, here is why doing this is morally right, or saying, here is why doing this produces good results. And I had a debate which is, was videoed and is available online like 30 or 40 years ago with a libertarian philosopher, George Smith, very bright guy, who unfortunately died quite recently. On, on economics versus philosophy is the basis for libertarianism. And it is perfectly true that the statement, the result of this is good, depends on some way of knowing what's good. So in that sense, uh, one, in that sense, moral philosophy is prior to economics. But the problem is that as far as I can tell, moral philosophers can't actually show what's good that I agree with David Hume, who wrote a long time ago, that you can't deduce an ought from an is. So you can't deduce from the facts of reality 
uh, what is good or bad. And the way you get around that problem is that you observe that actual human beings tend to have fairly similar views of what's good, that there are very few people who think that people starving to death is good or that torturing children is good. So although people don't uh, agree in detail, and they certainly don't agree if you try to make it high-level principles, at the actual level of saying what outcomes would you like or not like, most, though not all, people will agree, roughly. And I think that the libertarian system is enough better than the alternatives. If the libertarian system was 1% better than some alternative, well, some people would prefer someone the other. If it's 20% better or 30% better, whatever that means, that'll be cover a, lot, a wide enough range so that most people with their slightly varying views of what's good will still prefer it. And therefore, my view is that the right way to persuade people of libertarian conclusions is by trying to show them that the outcome of what libertarians want to do is superior by their standards to the outcome of the alternatives. So is it really... Um not completely, but it's it's a st strategy in a certain sense of persuading people. That's right, but it's also in a sense a strategy of persuading yourself. That is to say, uh, I don't know for certain what good is. I have opinions on that. But as long as I can show that uh, the war on drugs makes things better by multiple standards, uh, it increases both the number of drug addicts who die for or are injured by the effect of the drugs and the amount of crime associated with, with, with drug addiction. Uh, it may reduce the number of addicts, but I'm not sure. On the other hand, most of the addictive drugs actually don't do that much damage if you take them with medical quality and so forth. Uh, I was told by a doctor who seemed well-informed on the subject that most heroin addicts go off heroin at about age 40 and that, the, uh, that, that heroin does not, in fact, have that is medical-grade heroin. Heroin, as you may know, was invented as a medical drug, as a safer substitute for morphine. Uh, and apparently, it, it, you know, it, obviously you're not very functional while you're high on heroin, but apparently if you've got uh, medical-quality heroin, it doesn't do very much damage to you. Uh, whereas the result of the low war on drugs is that the heroin you have is not medical quality and it may do quite a lot of damage with you. So if in any of these cases, if I can convince people that the consequences are consequences they regard as undesirable, that it seems to me is a, a sensible strategy. But it's also a sensible way of deciding what I believe. Right. Is it, um, is it utilitarian and... Utilitarian would be one of the multiple possible ways of evaluating things. Mm -hmm. So uh, various people have claimed I'm a utilitarian. And if you look up utilitarian in the index of machinery of freedom, the item in the index is utilitarian why I am not. Uh, because I can imagine circumstances where doing something would increase total utility and I'd be against it. Uh, but I think most people are partly utilitarians. That is, most people think the fact that this change will make other, make people in general happier is an argument for it. It's not necessarily a proof for it, but it's a pretty strong argument. And I think that the libertarian sort of absolute philosophical arguments mostly turn out not to be defensible if you think about them. That is, when people say, well, the non-aggression principle says you should never initiate coercion. And you then try to look for hard cases. And my favorite one is one that Bill Bradford, who used to run Liberty Magazine, also no longer alive, came up with. And that's you're on the balcony of your 10th floor apartment and you somehow carelessly fall off. 
Luckily, the ninth floor apartment balcony has a flagpole. It's a very sturdy flagpole and you catch onto it. And you're going hand over hand towards that balcony to get away when the owner of the apartment comes out and says, I do not give you permission to use my flagpole. Do you let go? If you don't let go, you're violating his property rights. And yet I think there are very few people who would let go under those circumstances. So that would be one example of why trying to put libertarianism in sort of absolute statements doesn't work very well. And I, absolute moral statements. And I think it makes more sense to say violating rights is a bad thing. It's not the only bad thing in the world. That if you really have a choice between a small violation of rights and uh, an enormous benefit such as you're not having to fall nine stories and die, then you do it. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not very comfortable with libertarian rights arguments. And I don't think they work very well. The, the question that I wanted to ask is, is, is almost semantics because I, I'm not a big fan of using the word anarchy because mm. I, I think it has, has a lot of baggage. And I, I wonder what anarchy in the popular culture meant 49 years ago because today, particularly if I'm talking to a conservative audience, they imagine um, activists with, with black masks on smashing windows and burning buildings and, and hurting people and taking but, their stuff. But that's a good reason to say anarcho-capitalist instead of anarchist in order to make it clear what kind of anarchist you are. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm not sure there is a good word. For, you know, you can say, I believe in a stateless society, but that doesn't really work the way anarchist does as a mm. noun. Which so is, that is the technical definition of the word, correct? Mm. Yeah. Well, the definition is always tricky. That sure. is a definition that some left anarchists would say we aren't really anarchists because although we don't want a government, we want other forms of hierarchy, uh, such as empl ordinary employment. Uh, and they would have said that anarchy includes being against all hierarchy. But I would have said that a very common definition uh, and the definition that the word seems to imply uh, is no government. And that raises the issue of what is a government when I actually discussed that at some length in the talk that I gave this morning. So what do you think of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of other economists that may have uh, gotten close to where you are using very different means. And, and as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Hayek's entire conversation about the, the spontaneous evolution of rules that, mm -hmm. that hold civil society together. Does, is there such a thing as a Hayekian anarchist? Probably, but I don't know. The, there's, it's not quite the same thing, but Ronald Coase's final book, co-authored with a Chinese economist, was on how China went capitalist. And he, he unfortunately died after that. I think he was over 100 when he finished writing it. Uh, and things have not gone as well in China since. But his basic argument was that China did better inventing its own version of capitalism than it would have if it had imported Western economists to tell it that the details of what set of institutions work in a particular culture are not the same for all countries and cultures, and that they were sort of doing a trial and error blundering under Deng's supervision towards a version of uh, capitalism that worked tolerably well. Uh, part, of, part of what he described, which was sort of interesting, was you have a basically a governmental industrial park, so to speak, and it's got two offices. 
one office is for doing the same thing that a private industrial park would, arranging for electricity and water and sewage and so forth, and one is for letting, helping your tenants interact with the governmental structure. And his argument was that, at least at the time he was writing, if you wanted to succeed as a uh, government regulator in China, you wanted you, the little area you were regulating to prosper because that would get you promoted because the people at the top wanted economic growth and that you therefore had in effect a competitive market for governmental functions in that system uh, where uh, if you thought up a good way of doing it, other bureaucrats would observe it, copy it, and so forth. Uh, and there are problems with that, which I've discussed in a review I published of, of Coase's book. But it was an interesting idea of thinking about evolving into capitalist institutions rather than imposing them from above, which yeah. I thought was quite neat. I mean, that, that sort of um, leads me to a, a really interesting question that, that maybe none of us know the answer to, but um, as all of us are activists and advocates and, and thinkers and storytellers in this space of liberty, um, the question is, are we winning? Are we losing? What do we do about what, what seems to be um, a, a collapse of, of constitutional constraints on government in this country? It seems to be that there's, there's more and more uh, vested interests that, that, that are feeding off of the system and it's sort of naturally growing and, and getting worse. So, so what, is our, what is our strategy or our theory of change that gets us to more freedom? If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, uh, I guess part of the there are a number of different strategies possible. Uh, part of the argument I offer is that you can think of the democratic political system as sort of like the microscopes that have a coarse control and a fine control. And the fine control is basically special interest lobbying. And the coarse control is democratic voting. And democratic voting, because voters are rationally ignorant, is driven by free information. It's driven by the things that people know without having to actually do any research on them. Uh, a free information, of course, is quite often worth what you pay for it. Uh, it is often not accurate information. So one of the things one can do is to try to change the mix of free information that's out there. So that one of the things that I've done and see echoing at various points online is come up with a explanation of why free trade is a good thing, which doesn't require very many economics. It's basically an explanation of Ricardo's principle of comparative advantage. But the way I put it is that we have two technologies for producing automobiles. We can build them in Detroit or we can grow them in Iowa. And the way you grow automobiles in Iowa is you grow the raw material they're made out of, which is called wheat. You pile it on a ship. You send the ship out into the Pacific and it comes back with Hondas on it. <laughs> and that that's a mechanism for producing automobiles just like building them in Detroit. 
that therefore the, that me- there's competition between the mechanisms, but it's not competition between Japan and America. It's competition between American farmers and American auto workers. And if you impose a tariff, that's simply a tax on one of those tech technologies. It has the usual problem that it means that even if the technology that you're taxing actually does the job cheaper, you'll end up using the other technology. Uh, so that, that's a, my point is that that particular way of presenting the idea is sort of easy to remember, easy to repeat. It's a good story. It's got a good punchline, so to speak. And therefore, it very slightly tilts the balance of what everybody knows. And I think there are lots of things you can do that way. It's one of the functions of being an academic is to try to shift the field in such a way that the people who were your students when they become professors will teach different things and that will affect what college students believe and so forth. Uh, so, and I think in many ways our opposition has done that very effectively. Uh, but we can do it too and should. So that's one approach. Uh, another approach is trying to create alternative institutions. That if you, if somebody could come up with a inexpensive, good substitute for the public schools, well, if it gets cheap enough, even without vouchers, people a lot of people will use it, uh, and vouchers become more attractive in in that in that environment. Uh, similarly, for lots of other things, that if you had proposed abolishing the U.S. Post Office 50 years ago, the response of most ordinary people would be, that was an absurd idea, who would carry the mail? And of course the answer nowadays is, well, I expect UPS or FedEx could do the job, that we have a case where institution is developed, that we're in effect competing with the government institution uh, and doing it well enough so people no longer take it for granted that you need the government institution. So that's a different one. Yet another one is the one that the Libertarian Party exemplifies. Uh, And that, as I see it, really has two related functions. One of them is taking advantage of the electoral process when people are likely to be paying attention to political ideas, to political issues, to spread libertarian ideas, to try to change the general public view. And the other is that to the extent you are successful enough so that you're getting 3%, of the vote, something nowhere close to winning an election, but large enough to swing an election, you've now created an incentive for the other two parties to say, well, are there some of the issues that those nuts are proposing that we could propose too and get some of those votes for us? So I know my father used to argue that the most successful political party in American history was the Socialist Party, that the Socialist Party... uh, never elected, I think, anybody more important than the mayor of Milwaukee, if I remember correctly. Uh, but if you compare their platform in 19, around 1900, I don't know exactly 1900, to the platforms of the Republicans and the Democrats today, you discover that they won, that a very large number of their issues are now accepted policy. And we'd like to do the same thing in the opposite direction. So that's yet, a, yet another. So those are all different things. And I think it's a mistake to believe that there is a correct libertarian policy. Uh, One of the things one observes in political movements is that people spend an awful lot of time fighting with each other. So that I think socialists probably spend a good deal more time arguing with socialists than they do arguing with conservatives. And similarly, I suspect, for conservatives and similarly for libertarians. We, We do that? Yeah, I, I, from time to time, from time not, to time. None of these guys do that. Certainly not in the Libertarian Party. That would never happen. That would never happen. Uh, no. And the reason it's tempting to do that 
is the idea that there is a pool of libertarian resources mm -hmm. of volunteer labor and donated money and such. And if I know the right way of using those to spread libertarianism, you're just wasting libertarian resources when you use a different way. Yeah. And that's not a mistake libertarians should make because there aren't any libertarian resources that my time and effort are my resource. If you persuade me that the best thing to do is to campaign for candidates, since I don't want to campaign for candidates and wouldn't be any good at it, I'll play World of Warcraft or read science fiction novels instead. And so the sensible tactic is rather to say for each person, what are the ways of bringing libertarianism that work for him? And, and then have a much more diverse it's sort of like my approach to unschooling of kids, that rather than saying, here are the things that all kids have to learn, and there are very few things which it makes sense to view that way, you say, what are the things this kid is interested in? Encourage him in those things. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, almost anything you're interested in could lead you to learning how to write better because you, having discovered something interesting about something, you want to tell other people about it, can learn, move in lots and lots of different of different ways. Uh, I know my daughter, when she was much younger, uh, used to write up battle reports for World of Warcraft. When her guild had been in a battle, she would make a story out of what had happened during that. Uh, so uh, that was a case where she was learning a very useful skill from what was only a game. And there are a lot of other examples of that sort. You, you've solved a major problem for me because I've, I've been making a a somewhat similar argument about about the future of libertarianism and the fights within the party. Um, we have a, we had a debate last year. Maybe we did it again this year between should we go with the free state project model or should we go with the national political party? And and of, and of course the the answer that I've always said is comparative advantage. And I very uncomfortably would quote Mao, who supposedly said something like "Let a thousand flowers bloom." Of course, he was lying, but yeah. but we couldn't possibly know what the right strategy is unless we have competition. So now I can quote David Friedman, and there isn't even a right strategy because yeah. there's a right strategy for different people. Right. So you have you have different people with different skills, but you also have a knowledge problem where you couldn't possibly know for sure if we put all of our eggs in one basket yeah. and say this is the path forward. If we did that with Correct. the party, we we might absolutely miss the real solution right. that That's right. would be discovered. That's right. The, now, one interesting problem, since there's only one libertarian party, is given that there are some libertarians who would like to sell libertarianism to the left and some who would like to sell it to the right, how do you go about doing both? And I do not know if the party will solve that problem or not. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I mean, I, and this, is, this gets into things that we do at Free the People. I do think that there's certain issues that are sort of transpartisan I think I think and part of it is is not the issue itself but it's the language you use to speak to conservatives versus progressives but um, uh, one one example of that might be a project we're working on right now about uh, Latinos that have fled various authoritarian socialist countries to get to America to, to in, enjoy a modicum of freedom and in, in their words uh, one of my friends says um, you have laws here, so it's not it's not corruption; it's laws, um, and and that same person might be persuasive to a young democratic socialist that forgot mm. a young Latino democratic socialist mm. that forgot why their parents fled Cuba. Yep. Conversely, 
Um, these, these same immigrants are far more American than many young people coming out of American universities. Yes. So that, there's a very conservative argument there. Yeah. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Yes. Yeah. The, yes, it's, I think the conservatives have made a very, the Republicans really have made a serious mistake in being opposed to Hispanic immigration that from their standpoint, the Hispanic immigrants are culturally much more near, much more on their side than on the Democrat side. But the problem is that the Hispanic immigrants know that the Republicans don't like them and the Democrats do like them. So that means they're likely to vote Democratic anyway. Uh, so that was a mistake. That was the one thing that Bush got right, in my opinion, that Bush yeah. tried to push the Republican Party into being pro-Hispanic and didn't didn't succeed. It's very upsetting to Trump fans to point out that Trump's view on immigration is quite similar to Bernie Sanders. That's right. For a lot of the same reasons, actually. Yeah, that's probably correct. So you've been at this for a while. Mm. Are you optimistic? Oh, before I'm going to ask, that's, that's the last question. But um, and this might be another strategy or you you maybe have spoken about this and and I don't know about it. But one of the arguments for blockchain technology is that in terms of, of contracts and enforcement, of, of trades and agreements, you can cut out the middleman and you eliminate some of those problems of, of centralized institutions yep. that don't there do their jobs. There are some technical problems. That is, as you know, may know, Ethereum is designed to make it possible to write contracts in effect in Ethereum. But in order to, in order for that to work, you need what the Ether people refer to as an oracle. You need some way in which the software can discover real world facts. And that's not a trivial problem because uh, if you say, well, we've bet on what the exchange rate will be in a year, how does the software find out which of us is right? Well, you could say, well, they look at the following website. Well, the loser of that bet might find a way of, of controlling that website for you know three hours yeah. in order that the software would think he would won when he hadn't lost. So, so I think the idea of self-enforcing contracts is a very neat and powerful idea, and I am not sure how, how doable it is. Uh, similarly, cryptocurrency potentially could replace governmental currencies, but for it to do that, ideally what you want is a cryptocurrency which has very low transaction costs, which has reasonably stable value, and which is private. And there have been there are at least two current projects, two cryptocurrencies that are supposed to be anonymous, Zcash and Monero. Uh, I don't know enough about either of them to know how nearly they meet this requirement. Bitcoin has got very unstable prices. It was the original clever idea. Uh, but if you did have a really convenient cryptocurrency, that might result in uh, replacing the governmental currencies. And if it did, 
there's a positive feedback to that effect because if you replace half the dollars, the there are still the same number of dollars out there uh, and half the demand for dollars, that means the value of the dollar goes down. And if you have a rapid inflation in dollars and not in your cryptocurrency, that's going to be a reason for people to move off of dollars. So that's, I don't think it's very likely, but that's a not impossible uh, future scenario. Okay, so I'm going to mash up my last two questions and, and, and let you move on. Um, because I wanted to ask you about, about your dad's legacy, and I will spoil it with my own opinion first, and I don't want to diminish, diminish his, his academic contributions, but I feel like the, his, his most important legacy, at least to me, was his ability to translate those complex ideas into a story, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and, a, and a quite optimistic story, mm-hmm. and take it to people. Um, what do you think? It is certainly true that he was very good at explaining ideas to people, as well as quite an important figure in the history of economics in terms of getting important economic ideas. Uh, his final project, as you may know, was vouchers. That he, he my parents set up a foundation uh, for uh, for spreading the idea of vouchers, and it does seem to be spreading, not as fast as we'd like. Uh, but in a sense, that goes back to my point about free information, that what uh, the Free to Choose television program did was to expose a whole bunch of people to a set of persuasive ideas they hadn't seen before, and at least some of them ended up saying, yes, that's right. Therefore, when we are told when a politician says, let's do X because it's good, your immediate response is, no, but it's not good. It's bad, so I should vote against him. And that's one of the ways in which things get changed. Yeah. So, so the question I was going to ask, are you, you've been doing this a long time, um, and it can be frustrating being a libertarian. Um, are you optimistic about our cause? Neither optimistic nor pessimistic. That my impression is that the world is always moving in both directions at once. So the way I would like to describe it over the length of my, my, my observation is that when I was a college student, the view that you needed centrally planned socialism because capitalism really was a discoordinated system with all sorts of problems was actually a respectable view that I suspect a notice of those Harvard students who were interested in such things a noticeable fraction would have held that view and a lot more would have held modified version of that. Almost nobody holds that view anymore. As far as I can tell, the people who say they're in favor of socialism, including Bernie Sanders, what they mean is welfare state capitalism. What they mean is the Scandinavian model. And the Scandinavian countries, aside from being welfare states, are, if anything, a little more capitalist than the U.S., not a little bit less. But it's generally generally comparable. Uh, so in that sense, we've won that fight. At the same time, environmentalism has to a significant degree filled the gap, as it were, for people who want arguments for governments to do things. It provides a new set of arguments. Intellectually, it's an improvement because it wasn't the, the environmentalist argument is in fact a better argument than the socialist one was. But unfortunately, given that the environmentalist argument is used to justify governments doing things, and the governments will decide which arguments to believe in rather complicated issues according to which ones they want to believe, uh, and you've got a rationally ignorant electorate, I think the net effect of that triumph of environmentalism is probably bad, not good. And it has really taken the form of a secular religion uh, which has the ability to spread and convince people that religions often have, and that's one of the things that seems to me a dangerous 
dangerous feature of the of the changes. So I think it's get better in some ways and worse in others. Uh, the internet, on the whole, I think is likely to promote liberty, uh, but it could still be used to try to reduce it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun for me. Good. Thank you. I enjoyed myself as well. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.